You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and this morning we'll be looking together at chapter 11. We're going to be reading verses 19 through 26, which you'll find on page 920 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter, 9, chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. Hear the word of God. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Well, the Jerusalem church recognized the hand of God in the conversion of Cornelius and his household. At first, the circumcision party rebuked Peter for eating with Gentiles. But when the apostle explained how the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them, they fell silent. And it became obvious to them that God had opened the door of the kingdom to welcome non-Jews. So it says in verse 18, they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The gift of repentance had been bestowed on Cornelius and his household. Without being circumcised, mind you, they were brought into the church by faith in Jesus. So now the scene shifts to other parts of the ancient world where Christians had fled. Stephen's martyrdom was the start of this major persecution that scattered them abroad. And in the providence of God, these believers were dispersed among the nations. They were like seeds sown in soil of the soil of the ancient world, to bear fruit. That was the purpose. Because the Lord overrules evil for good, always. And what was intended to hurt the church actually helped the church. As Matthew Henry put it, the enemies designed to scatter and lose them, but Christ designed to scatter and use them. And so believers from Jerusalem started to fan out across the ancient world. And as these fugitives traveled, they shared the gospel with Jews. No one else, 
Jews. They realized that Christianity was not just for personal comfort. It's meant to be shared and communicated, passed on to others. That's what these Jewish Christians were doing. They were conveying the gospel to other people. But some of them were willing to evangelize Greek-speaking Jews. So when they arrived in Antioch, they shared the gospel with Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews. And those willing to risk it were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, Greek. And these Greek-speaking Jews were concerned about their families and friends, and so to them, they were constantly preaching the Lord Jesus in Antioch. Now, mind you, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Its estimated population was 500,000. It was exceeded in size and importance only by Rome and Alexandria. And it was a major port situated on the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea, if you can think about that. Steeped in Grecian culture, it was one of the leading metropolitan cities. Huge, important city. And as such, it was ideally suited to serve as a command post for the Gentile mission, which is coming. From here, the church would send out Paul and Barnabas, and to here, the two missionaries would eventually return to give a report, Antioch. And of course, as these fugitives witnessed to the Hellenists, the Greeks were listening. And it says in verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Many Hellenists, many Greeks were drawn to Christ by the Holy Spirit. And it was an amazing display of divine power working with the word. That's how the Spirit chooses to work. He uses the instrument he inspired. We talked about this in the inquirer's class. The Spirit and the Word and their preaching of Jesus was accompanied with this supernatural power. He was opening the hearts of sinners to listen to the gospel. Their understanding was enlightened. Their will was subdued. And their desires were redirected toward Christ. That's in fulfillment of the prophecy in Psalm 110. Pastor Pilon read it this morning. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Supernatural power. Because when the Spirit moves, the believer then is enabled to embrace Christ freely. That's the biblical teaching regarding the regeneration of souls. Get this. First, the Spirit gives life then the convert exercises faith. Now, there is another teaching, very prominent in our day, which says that faith precedes regeneration. What it claims is that the sinner is capable on his own of hearing and believing the gospel. If and when he decides to respond in faith, he is thereby born again. That's the teaching. But that's completely backwards. It's not what the Bible teaches. It says that you and I, by nature, are dead in trespasses and sins. By nature, we are spiritual corpses 
How does a cadaver respond to anything? You can go down to the morgue this afternoon and take a knife with you and stab the cadaver. It's not going to respond. Doesn't feel a thing. Doesn't say a thing. Remember the young man who hesitated to follow Jesus until he first buried his parents that we read this morning? Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. He was saying, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. How sad. The unbeliever, while he's alive, is dead. So there's no way he can respond in faith to the gospel of Christ. The point is that only if God is pleased to change the heart will he ever believe, ever. So regeneration must precede faith. And do you know what that means? God is sovereign. God is sovereign in our salvation Jesus was explaining this critical truth of the new birth to Nicodemus. I'm sure you remember the passage in John 3. And the Pharisee, he didn't at first grasp the nature of regeneration. He thought that Christ was referring to being physically born twice, which was absurd. And then Jesus turns to Nicodemus and he says, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Nicodemus didn't yet understand that regeneration precedes faith. He was uninformed as the teacher of Israel. He thought that man could believe on his own, and that's the Arminian way of thinking. Just preach it, and they'll believe. So Nicodemus was an Arminian long before Arminianism was cool. The Lord had to explain to him that the Holy Spirit must first change the heart. Just a few years ago, when Elder Gilliland was a young man, he was being interviewed for membership in a Reformed church. And the pastor says to Elder Gilliland, which comes first, faith or regeneration? Do you know what he said? Faith. And the pastor said, you're an Arminian. And he said, what's that? <laughs> he was like Nicodemus. Because he didn't realize yet that the sinner must be born again if he's ever going to embrace the gospel. And do you see what he's saying? God is sovereign. He determines who's in and who's out. Because apart from regeneration, you cannot see and you cannot enter the kingdom. The Apostle John made that perfectly clear at the beginning of his gospel when he said this, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, they believed in his name. But then he goes on to say this, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's scary. Because you and I don't have the slightest thing to do with our spiritual rebirth. Nothing. We are not in control. 
People in our day think that it's an easy thing to repent and believe. It's amazing to me. I think I'll just wait till I'm older after I've had some fun and then I'll, I'll believe. I'll become religious. Do you realize that the Old Testament figure Esau, he realized the folly of despising his birthright and all the unbelief that goes with it. And later, Esau sought repentance with tears. The man was distraught. It says in Hebrews 12, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent. Now, if I'd have seen him, I may have said, Oh, Esau, calm down. You have it. You're concerned. No, indeed. It is not an easy thing to repent and believe. It's a costly thing. It's an important thing. It's a necessary thing. But it is not an easy thing to repent and believe. Only if God gives it can you do it. He is sovereign in creation as we sang this morning. He's sovereign in providence over all the affairs of men. And he's sovereign in salvation. And the truth is, you and I can neither repent nor believe unless the Spirit enables us. By grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's all of God. For a dead sinner to believe, the Spirit has to give new life. And you say to me, well, then what can I do? If I'm convicted of sin... How do I respond? Well, the Bible says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Ask him to change your heart. Who knows? Maybe he will. I can't guarantee it. It's not up to me. He's sovereign. He does what he pleases. We are not sacramentalists who say that he must give grace through the sacraments. Nor are we revelationists who say that God must convert when the word is preached. We know that the word will accomplish that for which he sends it. And sometimes he sends the word to harden hearts. Nobody hears a sermon and walks out of that sanctuary the same. Never. The Holy Spirit is sent to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And if that gracious Holy Spirit is pleased to convict you of sin out of mercy, perhaps he'll be pleased to convert you out of mercy. That's the biblical teaching. It's not my teaching. That's what the Bible teaches. He alone can do it. So ask him, plead with him, beg him for it. And that's what he was doing in Antioch when the fugitives went preaching Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, it says. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. It was a great revival. All sorts of Jews and Gentiles turning to the Lord. The start of what we might call a Gentile tsunami. A great number believed. Probably far more than expected, 
And these Gentile pagans were baptized and brought to the obedience of Christ. Not an easy task. They were taught to fear the one true and living God, and they were taught to keep his commandments. They turned from this careless, immoral, unbelieving way of life. And they were followers of Jesus. That's true discipleship. No easy believism here. They were trained. Jesus commissioned the church before he ascended. This is what he gave as a command. Make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. We saw baptism this morning. We saw a profession this morning. And I think this is one of the problems with modern, much of modern evangelicalism. The gospel is preached. The spirit moves. People respond, for which we're thankful. But there's very little training. Some have described American Christianity as a mile wide and an inch deep. And yet you see, Christ is not only a prophet who reveals the truth, and he's not only a priest who intercedes for his people, but Jesus Christ is a king who reigns. And his true followers are those who strive to obey his revealed will. Strive, not perfectly, but strive. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word. So those only are true converts who give themselves up to be discipled. There are many in our day, sadly, who profess to be Christians, but they don't abide in his word. I hate to say that. I don't want to say that. They claim to love Jesus, but it's pure emotion. And eventually the excitement wears off, just like those seeds that fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. Wow, Jesus, it's great. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. A true disciple may not be strong in faith, but a true disciple must be sound in faith, sincere in faith. His knowledge may yet be meager, but his sincerity is unfeigned. And so people should be told up front that they must submit to Jesus. Up front. What did Jesus say? Take up your cross. Wow, that's not a very good thing, Lord. That's not very encouraging to the seekers to take up a cross. You have to enter the school of Christ and learn to observe his will. Because on the final day, on that final day, all insincerity and hypocrisy will be fully exposed. And then Jesus says one of the most sobering passages in Scripture. He says, and I quote, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Sobering. As true disciples, we must strive for conformity to the word of Christ. 
No one's going to reach perfection in this life, but we strive. And do you know what privilege and blessing will follow? Jesus said this, you will know the truth, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You'll know whatever you need to know that is needful and beneficial, and that will make you free from guilt and corruption and the penalty of sin. It'll free you from fear, free you for service, and free you to worship God freely. You'll have freedom from prejudice. That's a good thing. You'll have freedom from error and darkness and confusion and lust. Never does a person think or act more freely than when he's a disciple of Christ. Your mind is illuminated, your reasoning is sound, and your heart is enlarged. Let me ask you, did that happen to you? Are you a disciple of that ilk? Well, it's not surprising that the mother church in Jerusalem took great interest. They heard the good news of many embracing the gospels, but the infusion of so many Gentile converts raised a concern, a level of concern. After all, discipleship is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. These new believers had been translated from deep darkness into light. They've been saved, they're spiritually alive, but they had lots of pagan baggage. Anybody in this room who's been converted later in life can really empathize with what they had to go through. It takes time and instruction and prayer and much effort to grow in Christ. It's the Spirit who works in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And as He does that, we work out our salvation. You learn things and you unlearn things. So many things. And Jesus said this, therefore, it's to you and I, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Why, Jesus? Because many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, what do you make of that? What do you make of that? Many seekers will be rejected. These aren't the people who don't care about Christ. They were convicted of sin, like Judas. They were awakened to eternal things, like the rich young ruler. But they weren't born again. They sought and yet were rejected. And I think sometimes we're too quick to say that someone has been regenerated just because they're convicted of sin. If God is pleased to give new birth, we are to strive for the prize. And once we're regenerated, we're prompted by the Spirit to follow Jesus, which is what Paul and Barnabas was, were teaching these people in Antioch. We take up our cross daily, and we're about killing the old man of sin. We're about trying to live out the Christian life, which Paul describes as the good fight between the flesh and the Spirit. And if you are now in that fight between the flesh and the desires of the flesh and the spirit, be encouraged. 
There was so much potential for the pagan beliefs and practices to infect the Antioch church. They had to be taught. They had to be trained. So they dispatched Barnabas, the son of encouragement, fluent in Greek and its customs because he was from Cyprus, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, richly endowed with the gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit. And when he saw in Antioch the grace of God, he was glad. Not just discerning, but encouraging. He rejoiced in the work. And so he quickly realized, and I'm drawing this to a close, but he quickly realized that the church needed help. So he goes to Tarsus, finds Paul, who had fled there when his life was in danger, and brings him back. And how thankful we are for Barnabas seeking Paul. You know something? I can only imagine that Barnabas had to know that Paul would outshine him in ministry. He had to know that. But it didn't matter. The son of encouragement desired the good of the church. He finds Paul. They return to Antioch in the work of discipleship. And I think it just illustrates the importance of teaching in the evangelistic endeavor. We've got to train. In his book, A Pastor's Sketches, Ichabod Spencer, that's his name. He was a pastor. Ichabod Spencer, Pastor Spencer, tells of a sick Irishman whom he visited at the request of the young man's aunt. This was her nephew. He was about 26 years of age. He was well-educated, and he was studying law in hopes of becoming an attorney in America. He was also dying. Pastor Spencer visited him numerous times in his sickness, each visit being characterized by a great deal of questions and answers and discussion, as well as patient reasoning and consistent biblical teaching. Time after time, the young man who had proudly and tenaciously held to his atheistical beliefs was shown the truth and wisdom of Christianity. And as he tells the story, he says, slowly but surely, over the course of time, this young man was brought to see the reasonableness of the Christian religion and his need for Christ. During their last visit together, the young man finally asked Pastor Spencer to pray with him. So they fell on their knees together. A short prayer was offered. And Pastor Spencer left never to see the man alive again. Immediately after Spencer left, apparently, the young man sent for his aunt, and he told her that he had renounced his infidelity, that he believed the Bible to be the very word of God, and that the atonement of Jesus Christ was all sufficient for a dying sinner. What an amazing confession. Soon after, he died in peace with praises for the atonement of Christ upon his lips. He had been an avowed infidel, but with patient biblical instruction, blessed by the power of the Spirit, he was brought to confess Christ. (laughs) Discipleship takes time, effort, and a great deal of patience. Kess had 19 toddlers this morning in Sunday school. Lots of patience. There's so many things to learn, 
But he who is sincere and willing to obey will know the truth, and the truth will set him free. And that's when he'll be called a Christian. May all of us be so called and prove it with the fruits of repentance. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the blessed Holy Spirit and the infallible inspired word which you use to give new life, to bring sinners to Christ, to build us up in faith and prepare us for heaven. We pray that discipleship would go on here, that Christ would be honored. And if anybody here in the hearing of my voice doesn't know the Lord Jesus, that your spirit would give the new birth and bring them into the kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.